a lot of us endurance athletes are obsessive and, and one of the ways, or one of the things that makes us good is that we're able to focus on like very, the very small details of our craft and spend a lot of time concentrating on improving those things. On the flip side, it's pretty easy to get, um, too bogged down in the weeds and, you know, we can have a hard time stepping back and really seeing the big picture of a progression, right? Which is something that happens over a long period of time, not something that we can expect to happen um, in a matter of weeks or months or even like a year or two. And I think that's something that I've gotten into a little bit of trouble probably in the past. That's Chelsea Sodaro. And this is episode 59 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I bring you conversations with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running to learn as much as I can about them while gleaning insight and inspiration that we can all apply to our own lives. This week, I've got Chelsea Sodaro joining me on the show. Many of you may remember her by her maiden name, Chelsea Riley. Chelsea, who won national titles in the Road 10K and Indoor 3000 Meters in 2012 and 2013, respectively, was one of the top distance runners in the U.S. not that long ago, with personal bests ranging from 408 in the 1500 meters to 1510 in the 5K. She's turned her attention to triathlon the last couple years and is quickly rising through the pro ranks, having won her first ITU World Cup race last year in Mexico. This was a great conversation. We covered a lot of ground. We talked about how Chelsea got into running, where she gets her competitive drive from, how she's dealt with injury throughout her career, the special relationship she has with Magdalena Boulay, transitioning to triathlon in recent years, the advice she'd give her younger self, and a whole lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you'll take a lot away from it. So let's dive right in with Chelsea Sodaro. All right. Um, well, I think we are good to go. Chelsea Sadaro, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's just after three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon here in the Bay Area. This won't come out for a few weeks, but I'm really interested in what your day has looked like so far. Uh, sure. Well, this morning I got up at 4.30 and I drove into San Francisco uh, where I swim on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. I swim with Purple Patch Fitness um, under Coach Matt Dixon. And, well, he's my coach, and um, that's my training group overall. But uh, I swim with the group on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the morning, super early. Mm -hmm. um, we get in the water at 5.30, and we're out of the water by 7 on most days. And after that, I did a little run and drove um, to another part of the city, had a cup of coffee while I was waiting to see my um, chiropractor, his name is Mike Lord. And uh, then I drove home, had a nap, came over here and I'll go for a little spin after we chat. It's a pretty packed day so far. Yeah, it's the life of a triathlete. And you are the first, I should say, active triathlete that I've had on the podcast, but your background is in running and we'll dig into that and also get into your evolution as an athlete and how you got into triathlon. But let's go back to the beginning. I read that your introduction to running was in Davis, California, where you grew up with your dad. He was a marathoner. He had run multiple Boston marathons and you used to, correct me if I'm wrong, cycle alongside him when he was out on his training runs. 
That's right. Yeah, I grew, grew up in Davis, which is uh, actually Bike City, USA. So I do have some cycling roots. But my dad is from Boston, and he is an avid sports fan and uh, has been an endurance athlete since college. He migrated out west to go to school at the University of Oregon in the 70s and kind of came of age during the running boom. And so he was always training for something when I was growing up. And I used to tag along on my bike and I remember um, setting little goals just on my bike with him to try to like make it up super, make it up hills on the ride. And um, I had these little challenges that were that were built into our uh, runs together. Um, so I kind of fell in love with that time with him. And then eventually I started running alongside him every once in a while. When did you start running alongside him? Gosh, I probably when I was 10 years old and I would only run with him for a couple of miles and I would complain the whole way out. And then once we would turn around, I would race home as fast as I could. What was it about his interest in running that intrigued you? I don't know if it was so much the running, but the time that we got to spend together, um, it was kind of sacred and something that was just for the two of us. And so I think it was more... Um, about that quality time than maybe the sport itself. But on the other hand, I I did watch him race a couple of times and I was just in awe of the accomplishment of running a marathon and competing and pushing yourself. And he ran CIM actually in the early 2000s. It was a really nasty year um, and it was so miserable, but just such an incredible accomplishment. And I, I remember that vividly. And just for reference, was your dad, would you consider him a competitive marathoner or was he more a serious age grouper? How would you classify him? He ran, I think in the two fifties. So he wasn't, I mean, like winning races, but he was solid and he was committed and, you know, he got up and ran every morning. And so, so I saw that dedication certainly. What other sports were you interested in, if any, as a kid? I grew up playing all sorts of sports, but I did age group swimming in the summer and I was always on my bike. Um, I was a pretty serious soccer player. I did club soccer up until high school. So the seeds for where you are now were being planted at a very young age, even though you didn't necessarily know it at the time. Yeah, I think so. I never had any dreams really of being a collegiate athlete or competing professionally, but I was always very competitive um, in whatever sport I was playing. Although I wouldn't say that I really found a true passion for sport until I found running. I never enjoyed practicing until I started doing cross country in high school. I I remember my parents always nagging me to go like dribble my soccer ball or juggle. And I never really found any like, I don't know, actual love for, for sport, I would say, until I found running. When did you realize you had some talent for running, whether it was your realization or someone telling you, hey, Chelsea, you're pretty darn good at this? I think maybe in seventh grade, actually. I was second at my like county cross country championship in the fall and I had set this goal to push uh, to beat 
um, a classmate of mine from elementary school and I couldn't beat her all season. And I think we raced like five or six times and I finally beat her at the championship and I threw up all over my singlet and I was so proud that I hung the singlet unwashed on my wall and was like totally pissed when my mom took it off one evening and washed it. But, but I think that, I think that that's probably when I, yeah, I I found some talent in running. Have you always had a competitive streak in you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I remember in high school, like even playing board games with my friends, like I was totally irritating with how competitive I was. Um, and I think that that has translated to academics and athletics and probably most things in life. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? I think a lot of it comes from just wanting to see what I'm capable of. I'm sure like part of it is like some sort of insecurity of wanting to like prove myself. And I don't know where that comes from necessarily, but but yeah, I think that I've always been curious about what I'm capable of. And you've had some amazing results, which we'll get into later in this conversation. And I want to be careful not to jump too far ahead, but do you think that can be a detriment as well? Sure. Absolutely. I think that it's led me into some injury cycles. I think that it probably has fueled some decisions that haven't panned out or in hindsight haven't been like the best course of action. Um, but I think that like a lot of gifts, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. The paradox of right. sort, <laughs> which previous guest of the show, Brad Stolberg just wrote a book about that. Um, the I passion know. paradox. Have I'm, you read that? I just got it actually. I'm really excited. I'm a big Steve Magnus fan. Um, and I've never met Brad actually, but we have some mutual friends and I love his work. So yeah, I can't wait to dig into it. What was it about that title that intrigued you to pick up the book? Gosh, I think I'm pretty introspective and I spend a lot of time by myself as an endurance athlete. And first of all, like I am always looking for an edge and a way to get better as an athlete, but I'm also like very curious person. And I think that Steve and Brad are really insightful and very accomplished um, authors and also in their other careers. And um, I have a feeling that the book will speak to me. I feel like it's spoken to a lot of folks who are in this world of, of endurance sports. Brad calls them pushers. Um, and that's not going to ruin the, the book for you, but sort of the central, one of the central premises of it is, is that, that paradox of passion can be a really good thing, but it can also end up being, you know, not so great if it gets abused or taken the wrong way. Right. What are the two kinds of passions that he talks about? Uh, harmonious passion, which is the good kind of passion and then obsessive passion. Uh, and it's you right. know, trying to strike the balance between those two things and how harmonious passion can, um, regress for lack of a better term into, into obsessive passion if you're not too careful. And that applies to athletes that applies to entrepreneurs, business people, just again, what they call pushers. Uh, it's really, it's really interesting. I think you'll take a lot away from it. Yeah, I think so too. I think, I think I definitely have an obsessive personality. 
Um, and I, I'd like to think, I think Brad said that as long as you're like in the 51% harmonious and the 49% right. obsessive, then you're doing okay. But I think that a lot of us endurance athletes are obsessive and, and one of the ways, or one of the things that makes us good is that we're able to focus on like very, the very small details of our craft and spend a lot of time concentrating on improving those things. On the flip side, it's pretty easy to get um, too bogged down in the weeds and, you know, we can have a hard time stepping back and really seeing the big picture of a progression, right? Which is something that happens over a long period of time, not something that we can expect to happen um, in a matter of weeks or months or even like a year or two. And I think that's something that I've gotten into a little bit of trouble probably in the past. Yeah, I, I think you really enjoyed it. It's a fine line of balance really that you're trying to to straddle and the way they present it is it's actually good to be unbalanced if you're trying to be the best athlete that you can be or you're trying to be the, the best anything that you can be you're going to have these micro periods where things just if you're looking at it objectively they aren't in balance because you're all in on this one thing and you know other things kind of fall to the wayside but you can't be there all the time so you've got to shift that balance kind of throughout your progression as a whatever. And if you look at it kind of on the whole or looking back, things do look balanced, but at any one time you're out of balance. If that may, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's go back to you and your progression as an athlete. When did you start focusing on running exclusively? I think that I quit soccer in the middle of the cross country season, actually, I was starting to have to make a lot of, of my freshman year of high school, excuse me. Mm -hmm. I was starting to have to make a lot of decisions about soccer practices and missing games. And, uh, the writing was kind of on the wall about where my talent was headed and also what I enjoyed doing. I like fell in love with the team aspect of cross country from the very beginning. I was surrounded by all these like really great junior and senior, um, students. So I had like an immediate group of cool older friends and, um, yeah, it was kind of taking off a little bit for me at that point. As you said earlier, you're a very competitive person and you saw some success. So obviously that's exciting as that team aspect, um, you know, just being involved in something bigger and having role models that, you know, you could, you could look up to as your career progressed in high school. Did you see, yourself emerging as a leader as you got better as an athlete? Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that was, you know, because of the success that I was having, but also I've noticed that during the most successful parts of my career from high school to even now, I've had the most success when I have been invested mm -hmm. in some sort of team or community that feels bigger than myself. And that probably sounds like a little bit of a cliche, but I think that, you know, running and triathlon, they're so painful <laughs> that when we have, you know, other people that are relying on us, like our cross country teammates or our training partners, we're able to get a lot more out of ourselves. And I think that it also probably takes the pressure off a little bit when we have something else that we're invested in. You saw some early success even before high school and then 
continued to have success throughout high school. What was your first major disappointment as an athlete? Oh, goodness. My first major disappointment as an athlete. I think maybe the state cross-country meet my sophomore year of high school. I think I was running really well. I don't even remember my results, but I know that I did not show up at the state meet. And I was probably like totally overcooked by November when we had like after Thanksgiving when we have the state meet in in California. Um, but I've had a lot of disappointments. So I don't know. That's the first one that really comes to mind. Yeah. Do you remember how you dealt with it at the time? Uh, not really. I think... I probably took a week off and hung out with friends and then just got back to running. I think that, you know, I just love the sport so much that I, I've definitely been like pretty dejected at like periods of my career, but I've always like wanted to come back and find out what else is possible or redeem myself, so to speak. Yeah. At what point of your high school career did you realize that running was something that you wanted to continue doing after you graduated? I think maybe my sophomore track season, I ran 454 in the mile. I think I went from like 505 to 454 in like a weekend. And I started getting letters from colleges that summer. But that was probably the first time it really occurred to me that that was something that you could do. You could do. Yeah. I had a, I had this great mentor actually. Her name is Sarah West Okay. and she ran at UCLA and she was several, several years older than me, but she would come take me out to lunch when she was home from school. Did and she graduate she from the same grad, high school? She graduated from the same high school as me and she, um, was a family friend and maybe even in junior high, actually, she would like take me out to lunch and tell me about, you know, what she had accomplished and um, what it was like running in college. And I would pick her brain about um, where, like how she'd gotten to where she was. And so I had like a really great little mentor um, pretty early on. What were some of the biggest takeaways that you had from your relationship with her in high school? I think she really encouraged me to take ownership over my own running and my training. And, um, but mostly she was just encouraging just, um, yeah. Another person that, uh, encouraged me to, you know, have self-belief and, um, told me that I could take it to the next level if that was something that I wanted to do. How important is it for you at this stage of your life to look back on those mentors and those moments when you need that, when you need a little bit more self-belief to continue propelling yourself forward? Yeah, I think it's it's one thing when you have other adults like your coaches or your parents in your life telling you that you're good at something or that you're capable of more, but that's also kind of their job. So, so at least I think, so to have more of a peer and another like strong female in my life that was closer to my age and doing something that I was excited about too, was pretty powerful. I think. Yeah. You went on to run at Cal Berkeley. What was the college selection process like for you as a promising young athlete coming out of high school? I had some really great opportunities coming out of high school. Um, and so it was a hard, it was a hard decision initially, but 
I came on a visit to Cal and Tony Sandoval, who's the coach there. Just retired. He just announced his retirement. I know he's been there for 37 years, which is incredible. But uh, he drove me around campus and he said, if you want to be part of creating something, this is the place for you. And um, the program, the women's distance program hadn't been performing particularly well the past few years before that. But he said, if you want to be part of creating something like you should come here and you can be part of the next, next generation of great Cal runners. And you were sold. <laughs> I was sold. Yeah. My mom also, you know, I like give a lot of credit to my dad for being, um, the spearhead of my athletic career. But my mom was actually a collegiate gymnast at UC Berkeley. Okay. And so she was, um, really excited about having another bear in the family. But you didn't feel pressure to go there because of that. I didn't feel pressure to go there because of that, but I, I think it was encouraged. I think my family was excited about the opportunity and yeah. What was that sense. transition like for you going from high school to college? Well, my first fall of cross country went really well. I like adapted to college life pretty seamlessly, I think. And I ran pretty well. I was, I think I led our team at the regional cross country meet. Um, something else that was very fortuitous for me was that Magdalena Boulay had just been hired as the assistant coach. Cal alum in her own right. Exactly. I think when, not to interrupt you, I apologize, no worries. but in my podcast with her, I forget what episode it was. She gave a very similar story about uh, Tony Sandoval and the recruiting pitch that he gave her to Cal. So as you were recounting that, I was like, I feel like I've heard this somewhere else before. (laughs) (laughs) He hasn't nailed down, worked on both of us. But I didn't know anything about Magda before I showed up for practice on the first day. And gosh, what a blessing for my time at Cal and for honestly the rest of my life. But we'll maybe get into that a little bit. But anyway, things went really well that first fall. And then towards the end of the fall after the cross country season, I got my first stress fracture and that... Was that your first major injury? That was my first major injury. I rolled my ankles a few times in high school, but aside from that, that was my first major injury. How did you deal with that at the time? Was it emotionally crushing? Yeah, it was absolutely emotionally crushing. I kind of poured myself into cross training, but I also didn't really know what that meant. And I didn't really know what a comeback from something like that would mean. So I I probably was a bit naive, Mm -hmm. maybe for the better. Let's take a step back. How did your training change from high school to college? We didn't get into the specifics of what you were doing in high school, but what were the biggest differences once you transitioned to Cal? As much as you can remember. As much as I can remember, gosh. Um, because we often see that, right. When, especially in a division one program, oftentimes the training load can be a lot higher and a lot more intense than what an athlete was doing in high school. And that leads to injury or just trying to keep up with so many other faster people. And maybe you're, you know, punching above your weight class, so to speak, um, can lead to injury. I'm just curious if you felt that way about your own situation. I don't remember any super drastic changes in my training during the cross country season. It was more after the cross country season ended. We got on the track very quickly after that season and 
Cal does a December mile where we tried to see how fast we could run in the mile off of our cross country training. And it was a couple of weeks into that kind of track specific work that I started to feel a pain in my shin. And I have had quite a bit of trouble with work in spikes, doing like fast speed work on the track since then. So that's become a pattern throughout my career. But I don't remember any like crazy significant changes. Mm-hmm. But this is quite a few years ago now. <laughs> well, not to skip over too yeah. much stuff about your collegiate career, but safe to say you dealt with a lot of injury while you were in college at Cal. Were they all stress-related injuries? Was it a pattern that you started to notice after a while? Take me through what the next few years look like after that initial stress fracture. Yeah, so I rehabbed from the tibia fracture and jumped into the track season. And I wasn't running particularly well, but I was pretty healthy. And I started noticing this like tightness in my arch in the spring. And we thought it was just a plantar fascia problem. And I kept on running on it and racing on it. And after the collegiate season ended, I went to race the Jim Bush that's still around the Jim Bush, yeah, the Jim Bush track classic down at Occidental maybe. And during the middle of the race, I had this like very sharp pain in my foot and I couldn't walk on my foot afterwards. And it turned out I had a very severe stress fracture in my navicular bone. And I actually had to get a graft from my ankle, put it into the bone with a couple of screws and anyone who's had a navicular stress fracture knows that that is... It's one of the nastiest stress fractures you can no get. It's no joke. And I did not know that when it happened. It took me about a year of rehab to really even run again. And when you have that kind of like structural compromise to your foot, it can cause a lot of other issues. And so I had several other stress fractures after that that I think were related to my like biomechanics and ankle mobility and all like a host of other issues that come along with, with that sort of injury. So it really wasn't until my fourth and fifth years at Cal that I had some consistency in training and really not until my fifth year at Cal that I showed a little bit more of my potential, I think. Is that when you were an All-American in cross country? Yeah, not until my fifth year. That was the first time that I'd ever been to a national meet. And we'll get into this later on in the conversation. One thing that has always impressed me about your running career is how much range you had. I mean, you've run fast for 1500 meters, four O's. You have run fast at 5k, low 15s. You've won a national title in the 10k. We'll talk about that. And you were an all American in cross country. What was your favorite discipline as a collegiate athlete or just throughout your career? Where have you gravitated most toward? I really love it all. I mean, there's a piece of me that definitely wishes that I could just be a miler because it's fun and it's really fast and the training's really exciting, but I've enjoyed it all. And I've had, you know, several different seasons of my career now, I think. Um, I always wanted to crack the 3K actually. Uh, And I don't think I ever quite did, but that was one of my first big breakthroughs on the track, my, my fifth year as well. But I don't know what my favorite was. I think like probably my best is my 5K. What did you learn from your collegiate career and the injuries that you dealt with and some of the success that you had? I think I learned a lot about persistence, a lot about self-belief and um, 
taking ownership of your career, picking yourself up when you're down. Um, I also learned a lot about surrounding myself with the right community and, and positive people. Um, I started running my best when I started dating my now husband and he's just been such a champion of my career this whole time. Um, and you guys met at Cal. We met at Cal. Yeah. He's pretty fast. He was really fast. Yeah. I like to brag about him because he won't brag about himself. You should brag about him. Yeah. He's a stud. Steeplechaser. Mm-hmm. Sub four minute miler. All American steeplechaser. His uh, Cal, his big meat record just got broken this past weekend. We were there to watch that. Stanford. How do you take that? He was okay. <laughs> it, was a, it was like 10 years ago now, so it was time. It was time. Yeah. Hey, I want to take a quick break to thank my friends at Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode. I'm a big fan of this brand and everything that they're about. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston, not far from where I grew up. They're a group of dedicated runners focused on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Their products, which reflect their New England roots, are designed for a specific running function and solve problems unique to the experience of training and racing. Whether that's building the perfect pair of half tights for speed workouts or split shorts that are just the right weight and with the right number of pockets for a marathon. And unlike other brands in the industry, Tracksmith's model is direct-to-consumer, which enables them to scour the earth for the most technical materials to meet a specific performance intent without having to compromise to make wholesale margins. Tracksmith is known for bringing running culture to life through creative events and experiences. They are heading overseas for the first time ever, popping up at the London Marathon starting Thursday, April 25th near Covent Garden. They'll be debuting a limited edition London collection as well as hosting shakeout runs, parties, post-race, poster stamping, and a lot more. Learn more at tracksmith.com Mario, that's my name, and follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning for updates. My thanks to Tracksmith for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. At any point of your collegiate career, especially early on when you were dealing with a lot of these injuries, did you ever have the thought that maybe I'm just not cut out to do this anymore? Absolutely. Absolutely. There were several times when I had just come back from a stress fracture and not like a few weeks later did I have a similar pain And I would think like, here we go again. And maybe this body is just not cut out to perform at this level. But I also had this like crazy voice in the back of my head that was like, no, you need to keep on trying. There's more there. You're capable of so much more. And I don't really know how I like stuck with it Mm -hmm. because it was a roller coaster. But um yeah, there was definitely, there were definitely many periods of self-doubt. When did you know you wanted to continue running beyond college? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I like did not have a great plan for what I was <laughs> going to do after college. And my running started to go really well my fifth year. And it just sort of like worked out as crazy as that sounds. I know you're supposed to like, for any like college kids out there, you're supposed to have a better plan set up for when you graduate. But I, I was running well. I, and I had like dreams of running at the Olympic trials that summer. I graduated in 2012 and I didn't come that close to hitting the trials mark, but I was ninth at NCAAs 
in the 5K, which is one spot away from being an All-American. Mm-hmm. And I was devastated. And it was the first time I'd ever made an outdoor track championships. And that seems like pretty like decent mark from afar. But I just like had to know what I could do. And at that point, um, Magda Boulay was no longer coaching at Cal, but I called her up a couple of days after the NCAA me and I, and this is after your collegiate career this was is over. after my collegiate career was over. I'm not sure what my plans were at this point, but I called her and I was just so bummed out. And I said, what do you think I should do? And she said, well, I still need to run the Olympic trials on the track, but I'll start coaching you as soon as that's over. Or I think she said, I'll start coaching you. Why don't you take a couple weeks off and then we'll chat. And that's how it started. What did you study at Cal? I studied English. And what was the attraction to that field of study for you? Well, I love to read and I think I'm a storyteller and I'm pretty creative in that way by nature. And, um, I fell in love with John Milton's Paradise Lost, actually. (laughs) Yeah. And did you have any idea where you wanted to take it beyond school? Or were you just so into running, especially in those last couple of years where you were finally able to develop some consistency and momentum? Or were you just like, "I'll, I'll just deal with this later? Yeah. I mean, I think it was probably the latter. I... I had like plans of going to law school eventually. I interned at a little um, AIDS advocacy law firm in Boston during college one summer. So that was kind of my long-term plan. But yeah, I don't think that I, I don't think that I had a grand plan at that point. Let's get back to Magda Boulay. You mentioned how you first met her when you started at Cal. She had just come on as an assistant coach, I believe. What were your initial impressions of her when you met her for the first time? I think that anyone who knows Magda knows that she's just like such an uplifting, joyful person to be around. And she's so encouraging. And it was incredible as a young female athlete to have a presence like that in my life. And I think it was like that for all of us. Um, During that first injury, Magda, the first time I was injured at Cal, Magda would meet me like almost every day to do core just so that I could have some sort of like coaching interaction and feel like I was still an athlete. And that's just a very small example of how she would go out of her way for us. But I also got to watch her become an Olympian. Um, the 2008 Olympic trials were during the spring of my freshman year of college. You got to watch? I didn't go out to watch. Gosh, I wish that I had now in retrospect, but we were all watching on TV and, oh gosh, it was just the most, like, it's giving me goosebumps now thinking about it, but it was the most like bold, heroic way to make the team. And like to see your coach do that is just incredibly inspiring. Yeah. When she started coaching you again after college, this is 2012, mm-hmm. you went on to win national 10K title on the roads that year, I believe. That's right. And Magda was coaching you. What did she do from a training standpoint, knowing 
how you had trained in college, what you had accomplished and understanding where you wanted to go as an athlete? I think the biggest thing that Magda did for me was probably just hold me back. We never really like went to the well in any of the sessions that we did that first summer. She introduced a lot more like threshold training into my life. And I was definitely more of a middle distance athlete at that point. Such a Jack Daniels disciple she is. She really is. Gosh, I've also had the privilege of meeting Jack with Magda, which is next level. The man can do a one finger pull up, one armed, one finger pull up. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> an Olympian in his own right. And he's an Olympi- Olympic medalist. Yeah. yeah. But um, we, yeah, she added a lot of like supplemental work. We did drills after every run, which helped my form a lot. We added strength training and did some Pilates. And we did a lot of hills on the treadmill. I had run, I think, a 441 mile indoors at Cal my senior, my fifth year. And then a few months after working with Magda, where we'd like mostly done hills on the treadmill, I ran a 430 mile at Falmouth. So Magda's Magda's very creative and she thinks outside the box and her philosophy is always to focus on what you can do, Mm -hmm. not what you can't do. How were you thinking about your running career in 2013 when you were setting personal bests and establishing yourself as one of the top runners in the country? I was really excited, but I rather than be excited about the personal bests, I was often disappointed actually because I thought that there was more there. And so while I was having lots of breakthroughs, I was definitely never satisfied. I like vividly remember finishing this 3K in Italy, my first professional summer in 2013. And I was like just committed to breaking 840 in the 3K and I was on pace for like six and a half laps or something. And I faded during the last 600 and I ran 847, which was a PR. And I was devastated. It's still your PR. It's still, it's some, it? I think that may still be my PR. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny looking back now where I was like, oh, I was actually doing pretty well that year. But I remember like several times in the moment being, being like kind of bummed out. Yeah. I think that like when you're on a tear like that, when you're PRing every race, it's easy to think it's easy. Just focus on what's next instead of kind of enjoy, give yourself like a little bit of a pat on the back for improving. What would Magda tell you in those moments? Magda's so positive. Yeah. She would just tell me probably to like enjoy it and, and to celebrate like running the fastest you ever run. Yeah. Is that something you remind yourself of now, even though those years are still behind you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I'm a little better about that now, but it's so rare now that I will set a personal record, (laughs) especially in running that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you have to enjoy like any, small victory. Yeah. But you are new to triathlon right now and still making jumps in all the disciplines or at least how they all come together. And I imagine even though it's not quite as black and white as track, you still have to take those, take that time to recognize your accomplishments or breakthroughs when they do happen. Definitely. That's definitely true because in triathlon, 
you know, we have all these new metrics or at least I have all these metrics that are new to me and my coach isn't like a massive um, tech junkie as far as like the power meter and, and all of that. But yeah, you know, as an athlete, you're always kind of comparing yourself to yourself. So I think it's important to, to have some grace in the process. What happened after 2013? After 2013, I decided to make a coaching change. I really, Magda and I were, Magda was actually my coach and my training partner in 2013. So you were doing a lot of your workouts with her as well. Magda and I were meeting like seven days a week oftentimes, which is a really great way to learn a lot very quickly. And I attribute a lot of my improvements to having that mentorship on a daily basis. That is on the job training at the ultimate level. And watching someone that accomplished every single day and all of the small things and all of the habits that they have. But I was feeling um, a need for a, a training group. Magda also had gone back to working at Goo full time. And so we weren't training together as often. And, um, I felt like I needed, I needed, um, some other stimulus around me. You ended up going to South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. You know what? I did not actually go to South Carolina. And then I went to, um, Colorado Springs and I trained at Olympic training center for about six months. And then I came back and worked with Magda again after that. And then I went to, um, for an elite. Yeah. And, uh, 2015. And what was the attraction to Furman Elite in 2015? I believe Robert Gary was coaching the group at Mm -hmm. the time. That's right. Yeah. The structure of having a training group and having training partners on a daily basis. I love being in a training group environment. I also think that it's something that's been a challenge for me because I get so consumed with my process when I'm in like a daily full on training environment. What were your biggest takeaways from your time at Furman or with Furman? Because at that point you were preparing for 2016 trials, which were less than two years away. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to Furman about a year before the Olympic trials in 2016, and that was a pretty challenge. That whole year uh, that I was there was a pretty challenging time for me. I am like super thankful for the chance that they took and um, how the group invested in me, but I, you know, was injured for like the second half of my time there. And something that's been challenging for me too is. Magda and I had such a great relationship and I believe, I believed and I continue to believe so much in her training and her method that I had a hard time buying into any other sort of training philosophy. And I think that she just had such a great way of explaining like why we did what we did. And I saw that translate to my performance that I had a hard time buying into other philosophies. Yeah. There's a connection there that you weren't finding in other places. Right. Exactly. And, you know, it was a tricky period 
in my life, I think, because I really craved having structure and having people to meet every day. And I hadn't really been able to create that out here in the Bay Area um, while working with Magda. I just never really found um, like the right, I don't know if community is the right word, but I never really found like the right training situation. Mm-hmm. Um after that kind of 2013 year while I was working with her. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. You didn't make it to the Olympic trials in 2016. I did make it to the Olympic trials in 2016. Had a horrific race at the trials in 2016. (laughs) Yeah. I had a tough day. And how are you thinking about your competitive career after those trials? My shoe contract was up at the end of 2016. And so I still wanted to keep on running. I had been like injured leading up to the trials and I like definitely did not show up on that day, but I knew that I still wanted to like continue to pursue the sport at some level. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I had started working with Magda actually again at that point. And I thought that maybe the marathon would be my best opportunity to continue my career because I figured that if I could pop a good marathon at like a CIM, maybe in December at the end of 2016, that someone would pick me up and open some doors. it would open some doors as the marathon does. Um, but only like a couple of weeks into marathon training, my like Achilles were already flared up again and I was, yeah, back to cross training. And at that point, at any point, did you feel like that was it? Maybe I just need to hang up my shoes and figure out a better way to spend my time? Or was there something inside you that still wanted to stay with this and saw some ray of hope somewhere along the line? Yeah, I definitely think that I had a lot of doubts at that point. I still like for whatever reason had like this belief that there was something more out there for me to accomplish athletically. Again, like I'm so fortunate to have the people in my life that I do because, um, like to his credit, my husband just wouldn't like allow me to give up on myself. And I had been following the women's triathlon build up to Rio Mm -hmm because it was really exciting and I had a kind of a hard time like watching track because I was so emotionally invested, but I love endurance sports. And so I was watching triathlon and I had purchased the, um, WTS, uh, series, like viewing package for that season. And the American women were so incredible. And so I was just a fan of the sport. And I had like made Steve, my husband, like watch these races with me. And so when I was begged up again after the trials, he said, why don't you try triathlon? I think you'd be really good at it. And I laughed and I said, that's literally the dumbest idea you've ever had. How long did it take from you telling him that this was the dumbest idea that you've ever had until you either got in the pool or jumped on a bike and started to see what was possible in the sport? Probably a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> so not that long. It wasn't very long. He had um, a frame, a carbon frame and he got the bike built up for me 
and he started going to like master's practices. No, he started going to the pool with me. And then there was, uh, we were in Flagstaff actually at the time. And so he would like swim with me for a few minutes until he realized that there was a bar at the pool. So he would like go have a beer <laughs> while I was swimming. <laughs> and a few weeks later, I joined a master's group and started swimming with them. I mean, initially this was more of just like a way to cross train while I was injured. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any like grand dreams of being an Olympic triathlete. It was more of like this crazy idea that I was entertaining while also like cross training because I couldn't do my actual job. And when you could get back to running, how did you go about making the decision to go more in the way of triathlon and not as far down the road that you were on in running? So I had already contacted coaches and triathlon before I even got back to running and I through like a crazy series of events, I got um, invited to sort of try out for this professional squad in San Diego. And yeah, I went there before I'd even really started running again. And what was that experience like for you to be around this team of higher level triathletes? You couldn't even run yourself. So I imagine you were getting in the pool with them, getting on the bike. Did you feel like you were literally and figuratively over your head at that point? Or was there something about the challenge of trying to keep up with them in these two disciplines that you really weren't super competent in um, and seeing if you could improve and hang? I was way less intimidated than I should have been probably. I I don't remember feeling like that. I I definitely was like out of my depths in the pool, but I was kind of told that I had some potential there and um I took to the bike surprisingly well. I I felt like I could like keep up so to speak kind of from the beginning and it came pretty naturally. So I was more energized by the challenge, I think. What were some of your biggest personal learnings at the time as you were transitioning into a new sport? I think that the most significant kind of like gift of triathlon is like the joy of being a beginner again and like how fun that is. I think that that's what I've learned most about myself or that's where I've learned most about myself. You know, as like a runner, I love to run more than anything. It's still my favorite part of the triathlon and part of the training. But, you know, what I have, have to put in to, like, knock off a, a couple seconds from my 5K is an incredible amount of work, and I may not I may not PR in the 5K. But, like, to be a beginner as a swimmer and a cyclist, you just improve so much, like, week in and week out. and That's energizing. It's really fun. It's really fun. Yeah. And then also to see those improvements, but still be like competing at a high level is like a pretty unique opportunity, I think. How long after you joined the group were you able to start running again and putting these pieces together? I had like started, yeah, reintroducing running when I was there that like first week that I was like sort of trying out. 
Um, but I think it was maybe like a month before I was really yeah, training the run again. How long until you competed in your first triathlon? So I guess I started training with a group in November, December of 2016. And I did my first triathlon in March. What was that race like for you? It wasn't as fun as I like expected it to be. It was really hard during the swim. I totally freaked out and I wanted to like grab onto the lifeboat. Uh, I did breaststrokes, which are not recommended in a triathlon swim. If you're like trying to be competitive and then, you know, I kind of survived the swim and I got onto the bike and I rode as hard as I could. And I just like hammered for, I guess it was 20K. And um, then just started running people down on, on the run. Yeah, it was hard. <laughs> Describe the feeling on that day when you got off the bike and started running and knowing there were people in front of you to chase down. I think I just kind of like went back to my roots. <laughs> it just becomes a running race at that, at that point, which is what I, I enjoy in triathlon. That's when I'm kind of in my element. Um, you know, like when you get through the swim and then when you get through the bike with no like mechanical issues, or at least when I do and I get off my bike, I'm like, it's go time. Game on. Game on. Yeah. This is my, this is my zone. Were you hooked after that first race? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I saw like so many areas of improvement too. So yeah, I was excited to see what was possible. But you did well enough that you thought with a little bit more work, you could certainly hold your own with these other women. Yeah. I got second at that race. And the only other woman, the woman who beat me was already a professional. And so like I qualified as a professional in that first race. And then at this like weekend, you race Saturday and Sunday and Mm -hmm. Sunday I won the race. So, so I had an idea that I would be like, I don't know that I was up for the challenge. And eventually did you commit to the group and move to San Diego full time? By this point, I was already committed to the group okay. and already in San Diego full time. Mm-hmm. And when did you move back to the Bay Area where you live now? I didn't move back to the Bay Area until I think September of 2018. And what spurred that? So I had a pretty successful first year and a half as a new triathlete, you know, there were definitely like highs and lows, I would say, but I had some like solid results for being so new to the sport. And in June of 2018, I won my first World Cup, which is like a pretty big deal. And I'd been working really hard for this result and it was going to open some doors for me as far as like the next levels of competition and it was in Mexico and I crossed the finish line and I just felt like so alone and so empty, which was really surprising to me (laughs) because I'd been working really hard to get this result. And, you know, you expect to feel like just so much elation and happiness. And I didn't feel that way. Why do you think that was? So I'm in like no point of my career have I felt like I've sacrificed for this pursuit. I've always just like loved the process and I love being an athlete. 
other people have sacrificed for me, but I never felt like I sacrificed. And um, my husband was actually working in the Bay Area at the time because his job is here. And I was living and training in San Diego and kind of traveling the ITU triathlon circuit. And so I think being away from him um, started to feel like a sacrifice to me because this really has been like a team effort and a pursuit that we've been on together. And I wasn't, I wasn't happy in my training environment. Yeah. And you moved back a little less than a year ago now, um, June, 2018. How did you go about the process of deciding where you would go next? Yeah. In terms of your training environment and coaching, but also, the distance that you wanted to focus on. Yeah. I mean, initially I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue on the Olympic circuit, you know, I'd had this like big result that was, you know, it's very competitive to be a female American triathlete. So it was like by no means like an indicator that I was going to make the team, but it was like a good sign in my progression for being like competitive. Was there something about this idea of the Olympic dream that spilled over from your track career that you felt like, okay, maybe those days are behind me, but I could still make an Olympic team in this other thing that you, that you wanted to hold on to. Absolutely. And that was the original like impetus for getting into triathlon that I wanted to make the team in triathlon. I wanted to, yeah, compete at the games. Um, but there was some like flip that was switched after that race, um, in Huatulco where that no longer felt like a meaningful pursuit. And the way that I was doing it was not going to like fill my bucket, so to speak, mm-hmm. which was, um, a strange feeling because I had been on this like pursuit and track and in triathlon for like several years at that point. And so that was definitely like a scary time, especially like coming off that sort of like victory. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't really see people like walk away. That's not when you walk away from something. But I think it speaks to the importance of you need to be happy to be really successful. Um, and in your case, you were successful given the fact that you had won the race, but as you said, you were feeling that emptiness and weren't exactly happy with your situation. And on some level realized that situation needs to change if I am going to continue to be successful at this. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Thanks. Yeah. I started reaching out to other coaches at that point and I, and I was thinking that I maybe wanted to move up to the half Ironman distance but I wasn't sure if I would be good at it or if other coaches would want to take me on. And I had reached out to Mac Dixon. He's here local to me in San Francisco. And we met for coffee. And one of the first things he said to me was, I think you can be good at this, but you can't just do what everyone else is doing. Like you don't have the same kind of background that all of these seasoned triathletes have. Like you're going to need to pursue this a little bit differently. And he said that, it's not just about the results. It's not just about what you do. It's how you do it. 
and his commitment to the process and enjoying the process um, was what really sold me. What really sold me on that and Purple Patch and, and the whole community. Yeah. From a training standpoint, not just with the group you were in in San Diego and how that changed um, when you moved to Matt and Purple Patch, but just triathlon in general. You started dipping your toes in the water as a means to cross train while you were injured from running and it evolved from there. But now that you've been in it for a while and are training at a high level and mixing the swimming, the biking and the running and doing targeted workouts in each of those disciplines, how has that impacted your overall ability to stay healthy? I think that I feel more balanced as an athlete now than I did when I was running. I think that, you know, it's, I have, we have like a more holistic approach maybe, um, like strength training is really important in my program and there's so much variety that I think that that lends well to overall health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in your current situation now, you train a lot with Sarah Piampiano, who has been very successful at the Ironman distance. How crucial has that been for you as you've moved up in distance yourself and are learning the ropes, so to speak? Yeah. Oh gosh. Sarah has been so wonderful. I, I guess I have like a pattern of, um, having really great female mentorship in my life and throughout my career. And, um, it's just been such a privilege to work with Sarah. When I was on the phone with her for the first time, I asked her like, so if I were to move here, would we be able to train together? Like how much do you envision like us working together? And she said, Chelsea, we can train together as much as you'd like. So yeah, it's been, it's been really fun. I mean, when you're putting in as many hours training as triathletes do, I think that it just adds a lot of joy when you're able to do it with someone else and have a partnership like we do. I think we complement each other really well. And, um, gosh, she just really builds me up as a human and as an athlete on a daily basis. And like, that's not part of the job description of being a training partner, but, um, she's a really special, special person. And I think a lot of people see like the fierce competitor that she is, but, um, having had the opportunity to like get to know her on a more personal level. Uh, she's just like a really, but a really wonderful, um, wonderful, like mentor to me. Yeah. How has being back in the Bay impacted your overall happiness and your training and racing effectiveness? I think my life just feels so much more rich being home. I feel like I'm home and like, obviously so much of that is, you know, living with my husband again, <laughs> but also the friends that we have here and like the community that I've been brought into with purple patch and just like the overall triathlon community here in the Bay area is wonderful. And I didn't even know that it existed several years ago when I was when I was a runner. Um, but you know, my family is only an hour away and 
Marin's my happy place. I think I like open my front gate and I have a view of Mount Tam, which is the best mountain in the in the world. And um, I'm energized by the roads here and and the environment that you know we're privileged enough to get to train in. What do you have on your agenda for the rest of this year from a racing standpoint? My next race is scheduled for the middle of May in France. I'm doing Ironman 70.3 pay to X. And then I'll um, do a few more 70.3s leading into the world championships in Nice in September. You're a very goal-driven person. You always have been. Obviously, you want to do well at these races. But how do you now continue to straddle that line between being motivated to try and achieve an outcome with trying to embrace the process and the environment and the people that you are around on a day-to-day basis? I think that it's easy to get fixated on an outcome goal, like a certain place or time. But I see that this triathlon journey is kind of a second chance in my career and I get to redo things a little bit and I really want to see what I'm capable of but I also want to do that like from a place of joy and love for the sport and love for what my body can do and also as like a celebration of the people in my community that invest in me I think that, like, ironically enough, that's probably, if I'm able to do that, I will be able to perform. I'll be able to do what I'm capable of out on the race course. But I think that, you know, my focus at this point is really, is really to enjoy the process and the journey and, and finding out what's possible. Do you ever feel an urge or some kind of pull to almost reverse course and go back to running (laughs) and see if you could still make a go of it there? Or at this point, are those days behind you and you see your athletic future as a triathlete exclusively? I can never say never. I think that my like days of PRing in the 1500 and the 5k probably are past me, but I've been able to surprise myself with some run sessions off of triathlon training. So I love to like hop in a, like a road 10k or half marathon. And I'm still curious about the marathon. I think every distance runner has the itch to find out what they could do in the marathon. I was really inspired by Melinda Elmore's performance. Right. She was coached by Matt Dixon, my coach. Um, and so I'm curious. Yeah, definitely curious to see what I could do. We'll wrap up this conversation here in a minute. Last bit of insight that I want to try and glean for you for a lot of the people listening to this, particularly young women, is what advice would you give your high school or college self 
knowing what you know now and having experienced what you've experienced throughout your career? I'd say take your time. I haven't, I don't look back on any like period of injury or like slump and think, I wish I had like trained harder in that time or I wish I had like rushed back sooner. I think I would tell myself to to do things the right way and to give my body the time that it needs to heal. And I would have a little more grace with myself, I think. Yeah. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Chelsea Sidaro, thank you so much for coming over and speaking with me today. Thanks for having me, Mario. All right, we did it. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you're a fan of the show, or heck, even if you're not, if you would go to your podcast app that you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review, it would really mean a lot to me. That helps new listeners to discover the show, and it is the easiest way to show your support. A big thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston, Massachusetts that was founded by a group of dedicated runners whose focus is on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates our sport's amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Tracksmith is known for bringing running culture to life through creative events and experiences. They're heading overseas for the first time ever, popping up at the London Marathon starting Thursday, April 25th near Covent Garden. They'll be debuting a limited edition London collection, as well as hosting shakeout runs, parties, post-race poster stamping, and a lot more. You can learn more at tracksmith.com slash Mario and follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning for updates. Also, big thank you to John Summerford of bearsrecords.com for handling all my audio needs for this show, including the music, which he produced himself. John's handled the sound for every episode of the podcast to date, and he's a big part of my small team here at The Morning Shakeout. Last thing. If you're digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribed. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you will likely enjoy. Okay, that's it. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.